Of all the people that you profile in this book, two figures stand out, Walt Disney and Art Babbitt. Most people know a little bit about Walt Disney, but a lot of folks have never heard the name Art Babbitt. I argue, and I think successfully, that Art Babbitt is the most important person in animation after Walt Disney in that entire decade in the 1930s. Welcome to Words and Pictures, the show about the narrative arts. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today I'm joined by animation historian Jake S. Friedman, author of the books The Art of Blue Sky Studios, The Disney Afternoon, The Making of a Television Renaissance, and The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. This is part two of a two-part conversation. Part one is available online on our free archive page kboo.fm slash words and pictures. Jake Friedman, welcome to Words and Pictures. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. You know, before I read your book, The Disney Revolt, I didn't realize how much the Disney strike of 1941 pulled in so much of Hollywood. You know, there were other unions joining the strike. They were picketing premieres. When the Disney feature The Reluctant Dragon premiered during the strike, Variety magazine compared its depiction of happy and contented artists to the propaganda of Joseph Goebbels. Right. Isn't that crazy? When I saw that, and that sentence is kind of embedded in an otherwise glowing review, or at the very least, better than lukewarm review of The Reluctant Dragon. I get the feeling that the writer of that review wanted to put it smack in the middle so it wouldn't be caught by the editor too easily. And also maybe to influence readers in in the writer's own point of view, which was obviously pro-union. But to compare <laughs> to compare this to like Nazi propaganda is drastic. And I thought this is too good. I have to put this in. When the strike is called in 1941 at Disney, this may have been the most colorful strike in U.S. history. Strikers dressed up and rode on donkeys and roller skates. Uh, there was one animator, Bill Littlejohn, who flew his biplane overhead and wiggled the wings. Uh, right. Musicians would come down, lead dance parties. Yeah. You had stars like Chuck Jones, who some of your listeners might know as now a great animation director at Warner Brothers and co-creator of like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and characters like that. At the time, he was just sort of coming into his own in 1941. And he was the head of the Warner Brothers branch. Schlesinger studio branch of the guild. So he was basically leading these Warner Brothers artists into the Disney strike as well. So when the, the, the strike was called and you have Disney artists with their picket signs, the Warner Brothers folks were coming in with their really beautiful <laughs> paper mache floats, totally bordering on the absurd, like giant caskets, whose names across it were the names of the defunct Disney unions and weeping widows with big fake candles mourning the death of these fake unions and uh, bundles for Disney is sort of like truck coming in with piles of food and signs saying, here you go, boys, manna from heaven. 
and things like that. And dressing up as like the French Revolution and a giant guillotine and a giant dummy whose head is placed under this fake guillotine and the dummy has the name Gunther Lessing written across it. Uh, you quote screenwriter Dalton Trumbo as calling the Disney strike Hollywood's favorite strike. <laughs> yeah, I think the artists knew that Walt Walt was all about publicity. He put his name on the studio. He had done lots of personal interviews. His name was on his name was the only credit on the title cards. There was no other credits, which is something that the artists fought for. Actually, they wanted some screen credits for these shorts that they were doing. Disney's name was the only name on the shorts after I think 1932. So Walt was very sensitive about his own publicity. So they were like, let's stick it where it hurts. Let's make some awful publicity and just attract a giant media storm. We're going to have picket signs with Disney characters like Jiminy Cricket saying, it ain't cricket to pass a picket or Pluto saying, I've got a bone to pick with Walt. Science saying, are we mice or men? I mean, these were like, these were great, clever signs and beautifully rendered by the people who drew these characters for a living. Now, Art Babbitt, who really became the face of the union movement at Disney, he had been one of the highest paid artists at the studio. And yet his concern seemed to genuinely be with the lowest paid people at the studio. Yeah. So Art Babbitt at the time was earning the equivalent today of basically like $200,000 a year. And he was like 27 at the time. At the time of the strike, he was 32, but he started earning that high salary, you know, while he was, he was 27, 28, 29. And he lived a very playboy lifestyle until he saw that there was a lack of equity going on. And th that seeing that lack of equity that turned right after Snow White, when all of these bonuses that were promised for the people who worked late, especially the inkers and the painters, like all these low-level artists, like the assistants and the in-betweeners, they had been working night and day, literally night and day to get this out on time. And the promise of profit sharing was not only what kept their fuels going, but also reinforced the idea that we're all in this together, all for one, one for all. Walt is here in the foxhole with us. He's going to share in the profits with us. And if the studio succeeds, we'll all succeed. If the studio plummets, we'll all plummet. It really was a kind of like band of happy pirates idea where if the ship goes down, we're all, we're all going down. And if we all strike gold, we're going to divide it. And then Snow White proved highly successful and there was no profit sharing. And eventually a little bit of the bonuses kind of squeaked out, but it wasn't what people expected. And it kind of came way late and people thought it was kind of given reluctantly. And they saw that the money that they were expecting now that they were, you know, coming to an age where they wanted to build families and put mortgages on homes, all this money was going to the new studio that Walt was building in Burbank, which was not part of the agreement when they were working on Snow White. This was Walt's idea after Snow White became such a hit. And by the way, this, this Burbank studio is the current location of the studio. And Walt said, I'm building this big, beautiful studio for my artists. And the artists said, we, a lot of them said, great. And a lot of them said, screw you, Walt. We're not asking for this. I can't, I can't buy my wife a wedding ring on a new 
Art Deco desk, you know? So the strike was really divided down the middle between the people who saw the new studio as an oasis and people who saw it as a slap in the face. Yes. So the the new studio started getting built in the late 30s, and it really changed the atmosphere at the studio. And Walt didn't seem to get how the temperature had changed. And it really was his intransigence that led not only to the strike being called, but to it dragging on as long as it did, being called in 1941 and then dragging on for weeks and weeks. Yes. Yes. That's a good word. I wish I used in my book, intransigence. Yeah, but yeah, he certainly was that. But it was brewing. The strike was brewing for years. It was brewing for since months after Snow White since the trade papers reported that it had made all this money, you know, Oh, now it has made $5 million. Now it's made $8 million. Now it's the highest grossing film of all time, which is a record that it held until gone with the wind. So that became the beginning of this, that plus world war two happening overseas before the U S joined the war, but Europe was still, you know, war racked that cut off Disney's foreign revenue. And so with that is like basically 50% of its total revenue is gone, starting in 1939. All of these different things kind of come to a head. Disney can't afford to do the projects that, that the studio had wanted to do. And a lot is being shelved. Studio can't afford to keep as many people hired as it wanted and has to lay a lot of people off. So there are causes that are the studio's fault, like the bonuses and stuff. And there are causes that are outside of the studio's control, like World War II, that are kind of making this happen, kind of made the strike happen. And the strike did not come in a vacuum after these three and a half years and this regular unhappiness and this desire to meet with Walt and just have a union presence just so they can have a collective bargaining voice that was constantly met with refusal. And that, that refusal started with Vice President Gunther Lessing and it kind of extended to Walt. And had there been dialogue at the beginning between the management and the strikers, the strike wouldn't have happened. And pretty much what remaining goodwill there was at Disney, the, the Bonhomie, um, the, the strike destroyed it. There were some notable names caught in the crossfire. Uh, Walt Kelly uh, was an animator. He left Disney to start the Pogo comic strip. Hank Ketchum, who left to start Dennis the Menace. And uh, Carl Barks, who went on later to create all the great Donald Duck adventures in Walt Disney Comics and Stories. That's right. Carl Barks wasn't a striker, though. He was part of a group that wasn't that wasn't really too much of a loyalist, but he wasn't a striker either. And he was part of this a group of 50 people who signed a petition that was mailed to the president to step in and stop this strike. The president being FDR. FDR. So the strike dragged on for nine weeks. And one of the things that really pushed Disney to finally come to terms, it was the U.S. Office of Inter-American Affairs. They put pressure on him because they had agreed to bankroll a research trip to Latin America for Disney 
as part of the U.S.'s good neighbor program. It was kind of gearing up for war at this time. Um, that trip, the film Saludos Amigos would come out of it. Right, as well as The Three Caballeros in 45. Yeah, so this was basically the feds, the Roosevelt administration, finally trying to wrap a ribbon on this. Yeah, yeah. They said, um, we're not going to bankroll you to go to South America, which was a really sweet deal. I mean, Disney was hurting. The studio was hurting. Their foreign revenue was cut off. They really needed a saving grace. And the government was stepping in to say, we will pay for everything and you get to keep the profits. I mean, these movies were paid for by the government, I guess. Logically, the government should own them. We should be able to have like free copies of these movies. But no, it's in a very generous offer. They allowed Disney to keep the property. So Disney has been able to keep this like group of artists on staff that became, they were named El Grupo and they traveled to South America, but only under the condition that the strike was going to be resolved. It was just getting too messy and it was way too well known at the time. The idea that news of the Disney strike had spread across the entire country is really humbling, at least for me, knowing that so little has been written about the strike itself until fairly recently, like in the last few decades, is there any mention of it? And yet at the time it was huge. People were just like shaken by this thing. And other unions were striking in solidarity to the Disney strikers, which is now legal to do that. But at the time it wasn't people going out on strike all over and solidarity was just kind of like tying up the film industry everywhere in the country. So yeah, Walt went out, Roy agreed to bring in the person to lead arbitration from Washington, DC. The strikers were all ready to sign. Gunther Lessing said, no, not gonna trust them. And finally, Roy pushed Gunther Lessing aside and said, shut the hell up. (laughs) Yeah, so the U.S. government may have actually spared the Disney studio from bankruptcy. I heard that Chuck Jones later said that if he had known how close to bankruptcy the Disney studio was in 1941, he may have stayed away from the picket line. Yeah, I think, you know, people were looking at the new studio and Walt was really about appearances. And it, it was not until 1942, well, actually until after a court ruling in 1942 came out. So like by 1943, did, did the public learn that Disney lost money in Fantasia and Pinocchio? Uh, today, it's said repeatedly that Disney lost a million dollars on Fantasia, lost a million dollars on, on Pinocchio. That fact was not public until as a result of a a court hearing in which Art Babbitt sued the Disney studio for unpaid bonuses and lost. And Disney's proof was their record books that they lost money on those two films. Disney did not want people to know this. It's kind of, it was a public company and it would have harmed the stock itself and maybe threatened the stockholders. You're listening to Words and Pictures. I'm your host, S.W. Conser, and today we're bringing you part two of a two-part conversation with animation historian Jake S. Friedman, author of the books The Art of Blue Sky Studios, The Disney Afternoon, The Making of a Television Renaissance, 
and The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. So, Jake, you were careful to use only primary documents from the period of the labor unrest at Disney, journals, letters, legal documents. Uh, To quote your author's note, I largely stayed away from recollections conveyed after 1948, although occasionally I included retrospective anecdotes to add color and character. One of the criticisms of the book that I've heard is that that policy tended to sideline uh, the voices of the women who worked for Disney at the time. Um, Animation historian Nancy Byman, who was a Disney animator in the 1990s, interviewed a number of women who had worked at the studios. They had pretty much stayed silent about the strike until at least the 1970s, which was understandable, you know, with a few notable exceptions, such as famous concept artist Mary Blair. Women at Disney back in those days were relegated to support roles, uh, mostly in the ink and paint department. But uh, Margaret Selby, who later married Pogo cartoonist Walt Kelly, she was a one-time president of the Screen Cartoonists Guild. And she talks about um, World War II breaking out in Europe, nearly half of the studio's income just Mm -hmm. drying up. All artists were asked to take a 15% pay cut. But employees like uh, Margaret Selby, she said that the accountants kept two sets of books, one of them claiming that Snow White never made a profit and one claiming that it did. And uh, the artists, as you said, were promised that 20% of the profits from Snow White would be distributed to the Disney employees as bonuses. But then Walt reneged. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I really didn't want to go on anecdotes as much as some other books have. Because, I mean, like, first of all, you tell me what your last birthday party was like, and you're going to have a different memory than your friend. If we're talking about interviews from people going back at least 30 years, people were interviewed in the 70s at the earliest about this. All, all you have is maybe a lead to something, but I was not going to put anything in my book that I couldn't triangulate in research. So if someone has a memory of something, if one of these strikers after the fact has a really, really juicy memory of something, I was not going to use it in the book. Uh, I didn't want this book to be just a list of people's memories. There are plenty of cool memories out there. I think an oral history of the strike would be a great book to read. I also wanted to keep it as scholarly as possible. The style of the book is a narrative. It's narrative nonfiction. I wanted to make it a fun read, but I also wanted to keep it scholarly. And in doing that, I didn't want it to be just people throwing spears at Disney. And a lot of the ex-strikers ended up having these feelings for the rest of their lives. Um, Some of them actually ended up staying at Disney, like ex Tessio, and some of them left Disney to start their own studios and to have ill will towards the studio. And our memories are colored by our feelings. And I just, there were some really great stories that I just couldn't put in because I couldn't, I couldn't authenticate them. And as far as women's voices, um, Mindy Johnson, who wrote a terrific book called Ink and Paint about the, the women of Walt Disney Studios. She read my book and wrote a very kind endorsement blurb for it that you can see in the book. 
Um, she had no problem with how the book was represented and who was represented in the book. Um, I think that there are just like so many great stories out there and I was only able to use the ones that I could authenticate. The other thing that you mentioned, and I forgot what it was, but I wanted to talk about that too. Would you remind me, please? The uh, the two sets of books uh, with Snow White. Yeah. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So that's something that I couldn't authenticate, but I was able to. So I spoke to a handful of survivors who are all gone now, but one of them was Don Lusk. Don Lusk was an animator. One of his big roles was animating Cleo in Pinocchio. And he his wife, Margie, was working in the personnel department. Um, the head of the personnel department, he plays a big role in the book because he ends up being basically the person running this, this witch hunt against non-loyalists before the strike and after the strike. His name is Hal Adelquist. Curiously enough, he was a member of Art Babbitt's bridal party when he got married in 1938 to the model of Snow White, Marge Belcher. A lot of connections here. It all makes a lot more sense. I'm trying not to throw in too many character names right now during this interview. But Don Lusk told me that his wife told him, who was working in the personnel department, that people who were strikers ended up having their, their status as striker or non-striker written across their employee evaluation. And they were kept in two separate files. And whoever was going to be fired if there was a layoff Don Lusk's wife, Margie, was instructed to go through the striker pile first. I had no proof of this until I went to the John Canemaker collection, which is a collection of animation resources at the Bobst NYU Library here in New York. And lo and behold, there are like 10 or 12 Xerox employee evaluations. And very faintly, you can see written across the top the word striker or non-striker. Wow. Some good research there. Well, you have to triangulate your sources when you want to write something scholarly. So the strike got resolved, but it didn't really get resolved. People were still being let go years later, as you said, who had been considered disloyal. And definitely the, the sense of camaraderie was not there. But, you know, World War II was, was hitting at the same time. Right. Even, even the few who stayed at the studio, um, there was a divide between the strikers and the non-strikers. And um, there were some who stayed at the studio for years, some strikers, including Don Lusk, including Ex Atencio. And what I do have in my book, there's an appendix of all the Disney strikers, all of their names and all of their positions when known. And if they stayed at the studio after, I think it's after 1949, that's indicated as well. Art Babbitt did not stay that long. He, he was given a leave of military service for World War II, came back and just was met with this really toxic work environment. And the short end of it is, is that he agreed on a very generous severance package in exchange for resigning. And so he resigned in January, 1947. So it was maybe like a year of this thing, basically being treated like a low level animator, like being kind of shunned and given the silent treatment of like everyone there. I just can't imagine what that was like for him. 
so he resigned in 1947, but you know, some others stayed on, but it, it was still never the same, even in the studio and outside the studio, people just hated, hated Walt Disney. These strikers, these ex-strikers would just like never stop at an opportunity just to talk smack about Walt Disney, feeling like, like he didn't receive the kind of punishment that they had received, you know? For a lot of them, their or their friends' careers were cut short. There were some very successful people who, who came out of the strike who ended up building whole careers with themselves, like Bill Melendez, who ended up being the head of the animation for the Peanuts cartoons and other wonderful things. P.D. Eastman, who is the children's book author-illustrator who does Go Dog Go, worked under Dr. Seuss. And some of the most innovative, progressive animation studios like UPA and John Hubley's Storyboard were largely made up of genius animators from, from Disney. Brilliant. Yeah, exactly. So like Steve Pazestow and John Hubley and, you know, Helberman was there too, Zach Schwartz. These guys were... That's where Art Babbitt ended up. Art Babbitt ended up there for a bit and did some wonderful animation there doing Mr. Magoo and doing some really special animation of the, the attorney in Rudy Tutu, an Oscar-nominated short film. Yeah, UPA won some Oscars there as well and made Steve Pazestow a legend, made John Hubley a legend, and really started this whole cartoon modern art style that changed animation. So you have a lot of brilliant artists, and there are more that that I, I don't have time to name who also made incredibly uh, significant impacts to art and to Hollywood who came out of the strike. But it's it's a real crying shame that there was such upset between the strikers and non-strikers and such bitter feelings afterwards. And I tried to illustrate why that happened within the course of the strike and how such bitterness could incur. And maybe provide a warning to people that something that could have been avoided wasn't and how um, this wedge between them just got wider and deeper and these echo chambers of who was right and who was wrong just got louder and louder. I, I don't think, unfortunately for Babbitt, as brilliant as Art Babbitt was, I don't think he considered his consequences of uh, vilifying Walt Disney and he was shouting at the megaphone during the strikes louder than anyone else. He was the one who almost got in a fist fight with Walt Disney because of his rancorous accusations. And I just don't think he considered what would happen at the end of the strike when we're all working together. But he had, like Walt, he had an ego and he felt personally slighted and personally affronted. And he felt like he was, he had, he had become a stool pigeon for Walt and Gunther Lessing. And I think he probably made his own bed at that point. Like something in him was like, I'm just going to screw these guys over as much as I can and show my anger at them as much as I can. He was kind of a martyr for the cause because he never reached the heights that he had at Disney ever again. Disney was the apex of his career. And all of the people who went out on strike and never went back and uh, continued to keep Babbitt as their friend, I think they saw Babbitt as the greatest martyr for their cause. And for Babbitt's sake, they continued slandering Walt Disney, even after Walt Disney had died. Wow. You've been listening to Words and Pictures. 
I'm your host, S.W. Counselor, and today we've been bringing you part two of a two-part conversation with animation historian Jake S. Friedman. Jake is the author of the books The Art of Blue Sky Studios, The Disney Afternoon, The Making of a Television Renaissance, and The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. Jake, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And for those listeners who might be interested in finding out more about your work, where would they look? Well, they can go to thedisneyrevolt.com. That has a bunch of additional information about the Disney strike and has a lot of my original research just there for the taking. And you can visit me on my website at www.jakesfriedman.com. Well, thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. Part one of this conversation is available online on our free archive page, kboo.fm slash words and pictures. And part two will be posted later today. Thanks to all our listeners on the radio dial and on the web. Be sure to follow us on social media at words and picture. Like a boat out of the blue. Fate steps in and sees you through.